welcome friends in the room. Everybody joining us online. Like Mickey said, my name is David Marvin. I work with The Porch on Tuesday nights and love getting to jump in. We are continuing, get excited. We're continuing the series, Playlist, where we are journeying through some of the Psalms. The reason we call it a playlist is because the book of Psalms was a bunch of songs that made up the Hebrew or the Israel, nation of Israel's playlist. So I'm going to read the one that we're going to be in tonight to read the lyrics from this song. It's Psalm 139. Be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in or surround me behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit, or where could I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being and you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained or laid out for me were written in your book before any one of them came to be. How precious to me or of me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake, I'm still with you. If only, God, you would slay the wicked. So the lyrics take a turn. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak evil of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is any offensive or sinful way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Now, like I said, this is one of the songs and the lyrics that we're going to look at from the Hebrew Spotify, if you will, which is the book of Psalms. And uh, if I was to ask this room, what, is the, what are some of the greatest songs of all time? Well, we probably have different opinions, and um, some of you would, would think the Twist or some Beatles song, or uh, depending on what age you grew up in, um, maybe you would say a Taylor Swift song. And so I went down the rabbit hole this week of researching what are the top songs of all time? And the challenge with that is you can't just say most sales because then songs that have been around that were released 50 years ago have 50 years on a song that, you know, was just recently released. So White Christmas would take the, you know, crown every single time because it's been around for forever and ever. But you can look at what are the songs that had the most success when they were released and stayed at number one for the most consecutive weeks in a row. 
which puts everybody kind of on a level playing field, if you will. So I put together and released, and if you're watching on the stream, because of copyright reasons, you won't be able to hear these. But here in uh, descending order is the bronze medal, the silver medal, and the gold medal for most successful songs of all time that stayed at number one for the most weeks. Here is number four, Take It Back, Whitney. Hey, you can keep that going, man. That girl is strong. <laughs> man, just, uh, they don't make them like that anymore. Allow, uh, also, around the 90s, that's bronze. Here is an oldie, but a goodie. Just a classic with the boys and Mariah. They just don't make them like that anymore. 90s, greatest era of all time. Number, uh, or tied for second place, if you will, uh, was this song. So this is also silver medal. These two, Mariah and um, Once We Day, and this song tied for second place of most weeks. Here it is. That's all we could play because the, <laughs> because the lyrics, while in Spanish, are also inappropriate. And... Um, <laughs> Which is pretty shocking that that is uh, a song that most of the population doesn't speak the language, and yet it lasted for 16 consecutive weeks. And then, most shocking of all, and maybe an offense to music everywhere, is the gold medal, or reflection of our culture, but the gold medal, longest 19 weeks at number one spot in a row, is this. It's a catchy song, but you put that on a list. You got Whitney Houston, and then you got Billy Ray. Just, it's like, it's an affront. Shame on our culture. What does that have to do with what we're talking about? Well, if you were to put together the top songs from the Hebrew Spotify, if you will, which is the book of Psalms, undoubtedly, Psalm 139 would be in that group. It's an amazing psalm. It's a psalm that many people in this room, you may have it on your you know, Instagram bio, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, or a coffee cup at home. It's just a, a song that connected with people. Many scholars have even called it the crown jewel of all the psalms. And so we're gonna walk through and see why it is a psalm and a song with lyrics that clearly just capture some really important truths and walk through what David had to say about this psalm. It's a psalm that answers some of the most important questions that any of us will ever ask in life of who am I? Does anybody know me? Is anybody out there? Do I matter? What's the, what's the point? This thing called life. And inside, David writes out these amazing, beautiful lyrics that the people of Israel would have sung this song and gone back to. And there's no wonder why it connects and it's so broadly something that people maybe are familiar with, have just found encouraging and inspirational. But make no mistake, it's not just a psalm that tells us we're fearfully and wonderfully made. The point and the focal point ultimately is about God. It tells us who our God is. And in knowing that, we then understand who we are. And we're going to learn who David, who is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. I love that. Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 1 says, David was the sweet 
psalmist. He wrote a lot of amazing songs. He was the Taylor Swift of his day, if you will. He just got one hit after the next, after the next coming out. But of all of them, you would have to say what he captures here answers some of the most important questions any of us will ever ask. And we're going to walk through and see who God was to David. David was called a man after God's own heart uniquely. And God, or David, is going to say, man, let me, let me tell you how I think about God. Let me tell you who God is. And if this is not how you think of him, you need to change your understanding of who God is. So I'm going to walk back through. As uh, I pointed out, this song is song lyrics, and there's four stanzas or four verses, not Bible verses, but sections, if you will, of the song. And we're going to walk through each of those. Now, David, if you're not familiar, likely wrote this psalm towards the end of his life. Uh, but really, regardless of when he wrote it, it's still all uh, applicable. But David lived a really interesting life by any standard. If you're not familiar, David was a king in the Old Testament, but he wasn't always king. He was raised in poverty. He was a shepherd. He was one of eight kids. He was such the runt of the litter that when Samuel, this guy, showed up and said to his dad, David's dad, Jesse, one of your sons is going to be king, God told me. Well, Jesse's pumped. He gets all of his sons in the room, and he's like, which one is it? And he forgot David. And Samuel goes through, and he's like, nope, 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 eeny, meeny, miny, nope. And he's like, do you have any other sons? And he's like, oh, I do have another son. Where is he? And he calls him out, come inside, and Samuel says, this one will be king. A little time goes by, and there's a giant uh, terrorist that shows up named Goliath. Goliath comes to the nation of Israel and is like, fee fi fo fum I want all of you, and if you don't defeat me, you will be our slaves, etc. Somebody fight me. Whole nation's afraid, except for a young shepherd boy who says, you don't talk to my God and God's people like that. Gets five smooth stones, a slingshot, throws them at Goliath's head, defeats this enormous giant, saves the nation. Overnight, he's a hero. It's a mountaintop experience. David didn't just have mountaintop experiences. He also had some low lows. Uh, if you're familiar with David's story, you know that David had a problem and that David liked the ladies. And one day, he's out in his palace, and he's looking around, and he sees a woman in a bath, naked, ironically named Bathsheba. And he says, who is that girl? And somebody says, it's Uriah's wife. It's one of your close friend's wife. And he says, go get her. And David commits adultery. He sleeps with her. And then he finds out she's pregnant. And this man, after God's own heart, makes a decision that for the rest of his life would impact him. And he decides to have his, one of his mighty men, that's what Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, have him killed, have him murdered. I mean, David had some highs. He had some lows. He, he had children problem. I mean, he, he was well acquainted with a lot of the human experience and challenges that come in this life. And understanding that gives you a broader context to exactly who David was and who God was in light of that. So I want to walk through the first verse, and we're just going to look at each four of these different verses and cover some really, really important truths. So the first verse, if you will, which is made up, or the first chorus, if you will, says this, You have searched me, Lord. You know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You know my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. You know my thoughts. You know my conduct. It's all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it, Lord. You, you know my thoughts, my actions. You know my words. 
You hem me in or you surround me behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too lofty to attain. David, in this first chorus, he points out several different words all hitting at the same idea that he's hammering home in the lyrics of this song that you are known by God. He says, you search me, God. You know me. You perceive me. You discern. You're familiar with. You know complete me. You surround me. The first truth from this beautiful song that David wrote was, with God, you are fully known. With God, you are fully known. And we're going to get to why this was so wonderful for David, that he knew everything. He knew all of his thoughts, all of his actions, all of, all of his poor decisions, all of his failures. Because he was fully known, but also he was fully loved. But David says, you fully know and are familiar with all of my ways, my actions, my words. Anybody a verbal processor here? External processing? I'm a verbal processor. It's the only way to live. You don't know what's coming next. It makes life exciting. It just is you're figuring it out kind of as you go. And while you may say something that surprises you, David would say, it didn't ever surprise God. The average person, both male and female, speaks 16,000 words a day, enough to fill up a book. Over the lifetime, an enormous library. And it says, David would say, he knows every word you've ever said, ever said. He knows every thought you'll ever have. And average person, again, I was studying this week, has 6,000 thoughts that they have a day, ranging from selfish to positive to negative to lustful to all across the board. And David says, God knows all of them. He knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know you. He knows your actions. He knows what you did last summer, last week, next Monday. And he knows why. He knows the motives. In other words, sometimes you do things, you're like, I don't even know why I did that. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says the heart is deceitful. We can self-deceive ourselves and be fooled. And David would say, you may fool yourself, but you don't fool God. God knows. He knows all about you. In Psalm 56, verse 8, we're told that God knows every tear that you cry. And he stores it in a bottle. It's a pretty powerful thing to think about. He knows all of them. Jesus would show up in Luke chapter 12 and he says, God has numbered the hairs on your head. He knows how many hairs, even if it's a diminishing number, he knows all of them. That's how intimately, and David, this leads him to say, man, I am known, I am loved, and not just that, God lays his hand on me. It's an image of a father with a child. God, you know everything about me. You know the messed up things that I did towards Bathsheba and their husband, and you don't move away from me. You are near like a, a child, when they're sick, a parent will come and put their hand on their back. And David says, this is who God is. This is my God. I am fully known and I am fully loved. He paints a picture of God seeing everything and it leads him to worship. Oftentimes we can feel skeptical. I mean, we live in an age that it's kind of interesting with all technology, things like Alexa and things that you, you can feel like you're constantly being surveyed. Anybody have somebody in their life that they know that is like, we do not have the Alexa. And if we're going to talk, we're going to hit the red button because they're listening. That person's out there. And understandably, because they're skeptical of like, oh man, I'm always being watched. This makes me uncomfortable. Well, so we understand that. There's also a type of somebody watching that is a reflection of care comfort and love. In my house, this uh, plays itself out 
with, uh, we have a baby monitor in my daughter's room where my wife is watching not to catch or not to, to be creepy, but because she loves her daughter. And David says, that, that's like what God is like. He's always there. I am known. Does anybody know me? David would say, God, you do. You don't just know the bad me. You don't just know the good me. You don't just know the social media perfectly manicured me. You know all of me, God. And you, you put your hand on me like a father to a child. No wonder David was moved just to worship. One of our greatest desires in life is to be known. And David says, you're known. You're known and you're loved. And as maybe at the end of his days or as he's writing this song, he is singing happy, God, I am known and I am loved. Tim Keller said that to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. Be, man, I love you. You don't really know me. It's comforting but superficial, kind of shallow. To be known but not loved is our greatest fear. To be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything. It liberates us. And this is how God loves us. No wonder David was moved to worship as he's writing this song. I am fully known and I am fully loved because with God, I am known. He then goes into the next verse, if you will, or chorus of our song where he brings up another topic. Not am I just fully known, but where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You're always with me. You're always there, God. I'm never alone. I'm not just known. I'm, I'm never alone. And he says, if I went up to the heavens, you're there. If I made my bed in the depths, in the deepest place, you're still there. I rise if I rise, and he makes up a metaphor of like, if I sprouted wings and I became a bird and I flew to the middle of the ocean, you are still right there, God. And even there, your hand will guide me and your right hand hold me. No matter where I go, David says, God is holding my hand, walking right alongside of me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and light become night around me, even the darkness is still not dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light with you. He's talking about no distance removes me from God's presence and no darkness, speaking literally of physical darkness, but it also applies to spiritual darkness. David's saying, in my worst moment, you saw me. In the darkest place, you were there. Darkness isn't dark to you. You see right through it. Because with you, I'm not just fully known and fully loved, I'm also never alone. He brings up, no matter where I go, second idea, with God, you are never alone. There's no distance, darkness, that moves me out of being near to you. And David's singing, man, I am never alone. Even when I can't see him, even when I can't always feel God, it doesn't mean he's not there, he's always there. My daughter is three years old and because she's three, we'll play games of hide and seek. And when you're three years old, you don't understand that just because you can't see the person 
uh, doesn't mean that they can't see you. So she will hide, and she will hide behind like a plant. And as a dad, or like I think there's even um, pictures where we've all seen kids that will come, and then you're like, hey, go hide. And they're hiding there. And um, that's some pics that our, our tech team pulled. But if you have kids, you've been there before where you're like, go hide. And they go hide, and you can clearly see them, and they're just shutting their eyes. And you, you have to, in order to extend the game, pretend like, Oh, where could she be? I don't see her. Oh, man, maybe she's over here or on the ground. Because you get that she doesn't understand that, hey, just because I can't see you doesn't mean that you're not there. That's how she thinks. And David is saying, man, just don't, don't ever buy the lie. Just because you can't see him, that doesn't mean he's not there. He's right there. He's holding your hand as you walk through life. Just because you can't see it always, just because you're not totally aware of it, doesn't mean he's not right there. My God is always with me. With God, I am fully known. And with God, I am never alone. It's pretty beautiful. One of some people's greatest fears is being alone. And David would say, with God, you are known. You are never alone. He's not distant. I was talking with a friend couple weeks ago and I was saying you know one thing I've been reflecting on is I've heard and understand that the relationship you have with your earthly father can often bleed into how you see your relationship with your heavenly father and I was thinking on that idea and I just don't have a really close relationship with my earthly father I would say it's it's more distant it's it's not really present And, and I was reflecting to this friend and I was just saying to whatever degree and I don't consciously see those as the same or think distant. But if any part of me sees like, hey, in the same distant relationship that I have there, that, that's how God is. You know? He's kind of distant. He, he cares and you know, you'll see him every once in a while. And, but he's really not that involved, David would say. <laughs> you, you, you don't know God. You, he, he's always there. He's near. You may pull away from God. He's never pulled away from you. He is with you. To, to the point that he uses a really intimate term. What do I mean by that? He says, no matter where I go, if I went to the middle of the ocean, even there, your hand is holding me. Your hand is leading me. You're holding my hand, God, everywhere that I go. Why do I say that's an intimate thing? Well, you think about like, the number of people that you will hold hands with is typically a pretty small list that you're gonna walk. In other words, for me, I, who am I going to hold hands with? I got my wife, got my kids, period. I'm not going to be walking through the mall holding a random person in here's hand. It's just not going to happen. In fact, I, I mean, that would go for most of us. It, even like interdigitating is a very uncomfortable thing unless it is a very intimate relationship. Like, has this happened? You circle up to do a group prayer and the person goes interdigitate with you and you're like, <laughs> okay, I'm uncomfortable. Let's just, God can hear us either way. And it's a very intimate thing. And, David says, that's exactly how God is. You, when I was a bad king, God, you were there. When I was out in the field as a shepherd, you were there. When I picked those stones up to fight Goliath, you were there. When you went to the office this week, he was there. When you got engaged to your wife in that season, he was there. When your first child was born, when you went through crippling loss, he was there. You were never alone. And David, I think, reflecting over his life, And the beauty that when things were going well, God, you were there. No matter how dark things got, you were there. You never leave me because with God, I 
and never alone. I am known and I am loved. And not only that, he brings us to the third point, which I think is the best chorus, if you will, of the song. He says, with God, I'm fully known. With God, I'm never alone. And then he says, for you created my inmost being. Talking about his soul. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. I love it. He says, God had eyes on you when you didn't even have eyes. All the days ordained or laid out, every day I was going to live, was written in your book before any one of them came to be. Before you were born, God had a book of your life. How precious to me or of me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. God, you're always thinking about me, David said. The number of thoughts you have towards me, God, it would be impossible for me to even count them. You are always on God's mind. When I awake, as if if I attempted to count all the grains of the sand, I would fall asleep before I could able to count how many thoughts you have about me, and I would still be with you. David says that God not just knows you, is not just with you, he intimately cares about you. He cares about the beginning. That's what he brought up when, when you formed me. He cares about the future, the days that haven't even come. And he cares about the present, that you are always thinking about me, God. And in moving David to worship. My hunch is, some of us in the room, the intimacy that David describes, the love that even pours off the pages of David describing them. This is how my God is. It's not how a lot of us think of God. And David would say, man, you are wrong. Because with God, the third idea, your life matters. With God, your life matters. He formed every part of you. You are not an, you're not an accident. You're not a mistake. It may have thwarted your parents' timing or plans, but it certainly didn't thwart God's. That with God, your life matters. And he wove you together, and he knew you before your mom even knew she was pregnant with you. Every one of the 54 million heartbeats that a baby has before it enters into or exits the womb and enters the world, God oversees and conducted. And David is moved to worship that you know me, God. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, another reference of this idea of even in the womb, God, you knew me. It says, before I formed you in the womb, God speaking to Jeremiah, I knew you lays out what we would say the idea of life beginning at conception. It's what Christians have always believed because every life matters. And God says, even before anybody else knew you were there, I saw you. That's why the idea of abortion or euthanasia has always gone against what the Bible teaches because it's putting ourselves in the place of God. It's ending life. If that's part of your story, God is nothing but love and grace and healing offered to any of us. And you matter and you were known, and you were loved. But David's laying out that, God, you, you formed all of it. You're not some distant, you we wove me together. 
and you created who I am. And he leaps out and prays, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I praise you because of it. I'm going to come back to fearfully. But it's pretty astounding how years before test tube was ever around, David recognizes the intricacies of the human body. I mean, you are pretty astounding. Every person that's ever lived is incredible. Your body is made up of 206 bones, 640 muscles, 70 trillion cells in your body. God knows every one of them, fashioned every one of them. You have 100 billion neurons in your brain, seven octillion atoms. I don't even know what an octillion is, but it sounds enormous and it makes up your body. The most incredible creation and complex creation in the whole world, far greater than any galaxies or planets is you. And David recognizes what, you know, even today, science can't understand the human eye. As much as they study it, it's astounding how all of it works together. And that goes for so many different parts of who you are. And David says, man, I praise you. You are an incredible creator. Now, why does he use fearfully? Like, man, I am fearfully. It sounds great. It looks great on a coffee cup. But what does that actually mean? Fearfully is, in the Old Testament, often the word fear is synonymous with reverence or create awe, create worship. So David is saying, hey, the way that you created man is so amazing, it leads me to worship the creator. It's not dissimilar to this. There's certain products where when you experience them or you see them or you purchase them, you're like, this is just such an amazing product. Like, they just make amazing stuff. An example I had recently or not long ago was I was getting into a friend of mine's car and he had just gotten this Mercedes. And then I got in and just every experience that I had was like, this is not like my Toyota. And I'm opening the door and the door is so heavy. It's like, man, this is just, wow, this door is incredible. And it almost shuts itself. And then we're driving and it has these new things where if you take a turn, it hugs you. And I'm getting hugged by the Mercedes and I'm just like, and... Germans, they did it again. <laughs> they just make some amazing products. And it leads you to not praise the, the car itself, but the creator of the car. And that's what David is saying. Like, you are fearfully and wonderful. I praise you, God, because I am fearfully. I've been created by you, and it leads me to worship. I think the most fascinating part of this chorus, section of the song, is he says, before I was born, God, you had a book about my life. You knew it all. And the same is true with you. You knew every decision I was going to make, God. It introduces what we would uh, say is that the tension between free will and God's sovereignty, that David and you and I still have free will and are responsible for the decisions that we make, and yet God ordained and knew every one of them. Now, why is that interesting for David? Well, think about who's writing this. Say, God, you saw me when I wasn't even born. You had a book of my life already written out. In David's book, there was a couple chapters that would have been ones that would have caused some people to go, Man, I don't think we should keep that book. Namely, adultery and murder. You got the king, the nation, the one God's going to choose. And he knew before David was ever even born, that would be a part of his story. And like I said, if I was God... I would be tempted to be like, all right, you know what? We're not doing this. We're getting rid of that book. It's done. David said, that's not how God is. And he saw that. He knew that. He understood. He even saw the failures. Failures that he, a thousand years after David wrote this, would come to die on a cross for. And he sees all the failures that are in the book that is your life and my life. 
And David is singing himself going, man, I am known, I am loved, I'm never alone, and I matter, and you matter, and you were made on purpose. You were not an accident. And God wove you together in your mother's womb. He uses up or brings up the illustration of, of sand, and he says something that's so staggering. He goes, God, you think about me so much. You have so many thoughts about me. If I was to try to count them, they would be more than sand. Have you ever tried to count sand? It's, it's impossible. You pick it up and you're like, is that one or 17? It's literally impossible. And David is saying it would be impossible. How God is able to think about every single person here and constantly you are always on his mind is further beyond my ability to explain. But David says it's a fact. You are always on his mind fact that becomes, as I said, even more clear in light of the cross where he would say, I love you so much I will die for you and on your behalf. It's funny, David has such a, man, God knows me. He loves me. He's for me. He's with me in spite of me. This just perspective on God is so different from the way most of us think about him. When you read the Bible, there's men that have a vision of who God is that, that aligns with this. It's kind of staggering where they see themselves not based on how they think about God, but based on how God thinks about them. Their identity and who they are is wrapped up in, man, this is who God is and who I am to him. What do I mean by that? It's not just David here who sees himself as, man, I'm, God is always thinking, he loves me, he's with me, he's for me. There's a guy named John in the New Testament. John was one of the 12 disciples. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. He wrote one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John, when he wrote his gospel, he described himself and he did it in a really interesting way. He said, John, nope, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Every time he mentions his name, he's talking about, yeah, Peter was there and Mark was there and, and the disciple whom Jesus loved was there. It's a really interesting thing to think about. I mean, think about that idea. If you're Peter and you're reading John's, you're like, take it easy, John. He loved all of us, okay? <laughs> I mean, it'd be like at lunch today with your kids if one of them stood up and was like, henceforth, I shall no longer be known as Kyle. I will be going as the one that mother loves. <laughs> You'd be like, I, I, I love all of you. John was just so wrapped up in his identity, not, not in how he had done for God or what he thought about God, but what God, Jesus, thought about him. In other words, his, his identity wasn't even, hey, I'm the disciple who loves Jesus. It was, I am the one Jesus loves. It's like you get around, the closer you get to God, the more you feel like, man, he loves me. He knows me, and he loves me. And David would say, that's exactly right. Because that's who God is. Then he takes a turn and call the bridge of the song, if you will, where things go from, um, I'll just read it. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. It, it's like he, there's a key change or something and he goes from, like John Legend's, all of me loves all of you too. Screamo, let the bodies hit the floor. That's <laughs> what he does. God, if you would kill all the bad guys, come on. 
They who speak with evil intent, your adversaries, they misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I love it. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. What is David doing? Well, this is a weird term. What, what is possibly going on here? David is an, an emotional, he's passionate, he's in love. He's going, God, you know me. You love me. You're with me. I'm never alone. You know everything about me. You created me. I am so amazed and in love with you that if anybody doesn't like you, they got a problem with me. That's what he's doing. Anybody who is your enemy, I count them my enemies. He asked God a rhetorical question, which is the best part. Do I not hate those who hate you, God? It's like so extra. But he's communicating with somebody when you're in love that, man, I, I love this person. If anybody doesn't love this person, they got a problem with me. And he's communicating how he sees God. God knows me. He loves me. He's with me. He made me. And then he doesn't just say, God, you can get rid of evil out there. I want you to get rid of evil somewhere else. He says in verse 23, and he he ends in a similar but different way than he started. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. He started with, you have searched me. Now he says, God, search me. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. And see if there's any offensive way in me, any, any way that offends you, that's what the word offensive means, any sinful way in me, God. And will you lead me in the way everlasting? He says, you don't just have power over you know, getting rid of the evil out there. I want you to get rid of the evil in here. Humbly turns to God. And just something that is interesting in that is the opposite of what oftentimes people do. They don't invite God into, hey, I'm inviting you into my brokenness. I'm inviting you again, God. Come, Any, anything that's messed up in my life, I want, I want to bring you in. Will you come in and will you help me? I'm inviting you in. Oftentimes, um, our relationship with God is the opposite. We, like, I need to clean things up before I can invite you in. Uh, not long ago, we were having a, a birthday party for my daughter at her house, and, and Anytime that happens, the, the experience that all of us go through is, um, or often people go through, and if you're married, you for sure know what I'm talking about here, is, man, we need to like set aside six hours to get everything clean. Every room, even if they're not going to go in there, we want it to look like no one has ever even lived here before because people are coming over. So we're stuffing things in closet. My wife is cleaning things. We're cleaning rooms nobody's going to walk into. She's got candles lit in, lit in, like, in closets. People are not going to go in these. Baking brownies, we never break brownies. She's wearing an apron. I don't even know where we got that apron. It's like everything is next level. We gotta clean because people are coming over. We wanna make sure that everything looks perfect. Stuff and stuff in closets before they get here. Which is so ironic and funny because it's like these are, these are family and community. This is like our closest people. And we're like, everything's fine. This is how we always live. <laughs> and um, just an apron. And, uh, and I'm kidding. All right, point being, as it relates to God, so many people spend their life and they live that way where they think, man, if I, I'm going to have a relationship with God, I, I, I've got to kind of clean things up and get it together and, and then present myself in a specific way. And David says, you don't know what God is like. He says, search me, God. I'm inviting you into my brokenness. Come in, God. If there's anything broken in me, I got, I got, I'm, I'm inviting you into the darkest, worst 
terrible, messed up, sinful things in my life. Come in, God. Come in. I'm inviting you in. Will you come in, God? I'm inviting you in. I'm inviting you in. I'm not pushing away. God, I want you to come in to wherever the place in my heart that is not yielded to you. If there's sin in my life, God, I'm inviting you in. And I'm asking, don't leave me there. Don't leave that sin there. Will you lead me out of it in the way everlasting? David said, when you know God, that's what you do. You, you invite the only one who can do anything about the marriage that feels like it's crumbling around you. You say, God, will you come in, God. Will you come in and help me? In the pornography addiction, into the shame that you carry from decisions in your past you haven't told anybody about. Maybe an affair that has marked you and you just hide it and you feel like, oh, I can't, I can't bring that. And David says, no, no, no. I'm in. Come in, God. If there's anything that offends you, God, I'm, I'm inviting you again. Show it to me. And don't leave me here. Lead me. Lead me. Lead me out of it, God. I know that when I read a psalm like this, there are areas in my heart that think, man, I need, I've got to kind of clean it up. And I'm sure you're just a little bit disappointed. And David, the adulterer, murderer, not a great example in not just those areas, all kinds of areas. <laughs> not me. I'm inviting the only one who can do anything about it. I'm inviting the one who a thousand years after David would write these words would come to die on a cross to deal with sin once and for all and finally. By giving his life on the cross for anyone who will simply accept Jesus as their Lord, Savior, and payment for their sin, that he paid for you on that cross and he came back alive. Anyone who accepts that will have sin forever dealt with and have a relationship with the only one who can lead you and lead I out of any grievous, offensive way towards him in our life, in our heart. I don't know where in the room you're at, but God is saying, whatever, in the darkest spot, David would say, you invite him in. God, come again. I'm inviting you in. I'm inviting you in. Will you help me? Will you lead me? Let me pray. Father, thank you for the incredible, beautiful story. That Psalm 139 and the incredible song that we are introduced to who you are. I thank you that for those of us in Christ, we are never alone. We are fully known. We are fully loved. We are made on purpose. And so God, would you search us and would you reveal to us any way, anything that offends you and will you deal with it and will you help us? Don't leave us there, but lead us out of that in your love and in your mercy, we worship you now in song.